This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McNair. Oh, are you in for a treat? And I don't care whether you're listening in Saipan, Singapore, Shanghai, Central Europe, or North Dakota. All of them have a few things in common. Hopefully, a few folks in all of those locations listening to The God Show every week. And if you've missed any of the weeks that we've been on, lo these 17 years, you can always check out the Star Worldwide Networks dot com starworldwidenetworks.com and find out what you've been missing you rascals now listen before i introduce my guest at the beginning of what i know is going to be a delightful conversation i'm going to do something that i just simply never do i'm going to scan just a couple of the reviews just a couple of the comments that are made by fellow authors because they really epitomize what this woman, this Irene O'Garden, yes, Pat has another Irish person on. <laughs> Irene O'Garden was said by Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, another guest of mine in the past, said, for many years now, the poet, playwright, and memoirist Irene O'Garden has been a hero to me. I think of her as a walking, writing beam of light. Malachi McCourt, oh, another of my favorites, and another Irishman, set aside a goodly few hours with O'Garden's enthralling memoir and plunged into the lives of a family that has chosen you as their new member. Isn't that good stuff? You mean, wait a minute, you mean the book is as good as the comments by other authors? Yes, even better. New York Times says, bewitching, astounding, and heartbreaking. And Pat McMahon says, ladies and gentlemen, meet Irene O'Garden, author of Risking the Rapids, How My Wilderness Adventure healed my childhood. I've read it, I loved it, and my wife has given me permission to say, I love you, Irene. Oh, bless your heart. Well, thank you so much, Pat. That was a, that was a lovely intro. I'm, I'm just, I'm overcome. <laughs> well, I've gotten a chance, I've gotten a chance to meet not only Irene O'Garden, but I've gotten a chance to meet Mary Kay, oh. whose nickname was Keiko. Yep. Peter, who was Pogo in the family, Tom, Skip, Jim, and a name that's very familiar to me because my producer's name is Ro. Oh, that's great. And you've introduced us to them and your mom and dad. And the families that they went ahead and had. But you you introduce our audience right now to the family as you met them. You were the one that was born in 51, right? That's right. What about the rest of them? 
Uh, well, uh, there was a span of 20 years between the oldest and the youngest. Uh, there were seven of us uh, children in all. And my eldest sister, uh, Keiko, was born in 38. And then Pogo was born in 40. And Tom was born in 42. And then, you know, these are the war years. So there was a, a space. And also my mother had uh, a, a, a child who was named Joseph, the little one we lost, who only lived for nine hours. Uh, it was true of many families uh, uh, years ago that, that you know, one or two babies might be lost. And, and then my older brother, uh, Skip, was born in 49. I came along in 51. Then in 53, you can, you can sense the rhythm here. <laughs> 53 was my little brother, Jim, who led the uh, wilderness journey portion of the book, uh, led us out into the Montana wilderness. And then uh, my younger sister was born in 57, uh, Ro, and she accompanied me on this journey. How ironic, how ironic that you would use the term rhythm as you introduced us to this full Catholic family (laughs) in great abundance. Mom and dad uh, may have may have known about the rhythm system. Sounds like it was about as successful as it has been for most Catholic families. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Growing up Catholic, talk about that. Well, you know, I, I have many uh, many thank yous to offer uh, in my upbringing. Uh, I, I derived a, a lot from the Catholic Church in in matters of uh, you know, a sort of spiritual container for a while. Uh, the I certainly appreciate the uh, 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 the artistic uh, appreciation that was fostered in me uh, first by you know the the biblical stories and how beautifully they were told and the psalms and the parables and some really great uh, sermons given by some great priests. Uh, I loved the stained glass. I loved the music. I loved, you know, a lot of the sensual aspects uh, were really um, eye-opening and important, and and I really appreciated it. But the the underlying uh, belief that we are born with original sin, that we're essentially you know, bad to begin with, and there's really not much we can do about it. We have to continue to try and improve ourselves. Was a kind of, uh, I, I think, is not a helpful belief for for any human being to grow up with it. Like you came in flawed. Mm-hmm. You know? and I just think that that no other species on this planet comes in with <laughs> with a belief like that trees are meant to grow flowers are meant to grow animals are meant to grow in health and and vigor and uh, so this kind of clamps down on a child's uh, sense of self so um i would say that that, that was a real drawback uh, i've always i've always thought of it as a catholic and as a person who has grown up not only in an Irish Catholic family, but had almost exclusively an Irish education. I've always thought original sin was like a moral birthmark. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And, and, and you wonder really if it's going to be visible to everybody else, all the Lutherans and the Methodists and the uh. Buddhists. Um, but but it, is, it is also something that turns a number of Catholics 
away from the faith. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Well, it actually had that effect on me. That and the fact that, you know, the female presence was sort of relegated to <laughs> our Mother Mary and and a couple of saints, but there was no, you know, the, a nun was definitely not uh, as powerful as a priest. Um, and, and, and I know that inside out because, of course, I had a sister who was a nun. <laughs> and even she couldn't uh, uh, last uh, throughout her life. Uh, and that was Keiko, as you mentioned. Well, my producer, Rosemary, spent 10 years in the Ursuline convent. Oh, for heaven's sake. Yes. Wow. It, it, isn't that interesting? Go, yes. going from going from the convent where she really enjoyed her life uh, uh-huh. to <laughs> broadcasting. Uh, now there's a transition you have to admit, Irene. <laughs> well, you know, I'm the daughter of a broadcaster myself. Yes. So I, I have a particular appreciation for the work that you do and the work that Rosemary makes possible. Well, uh, let's, well let's talk about each of the children because they are such an integral part of virtually everything in the book. So introduce us to that broadcaster father of yours. Well, so so uh, my father was a uh, a broadcaster in uh, a local celebrity, really, in Minneapolis uh, in the in the fifties and sixties, and uh, he was a, a, a very articulate uh, and a, and a, a strong authoritative presence, uh, and his most important the quality that he stressed to us. Uh, was the quality of integrity, which is a beautiful thing to incorporate into your worldview, uh, that idea of being true to yourself and being, uh, you know, being an honest person and, and so forth. And, um, and he was, he was, I certainly was quite close to him, but one of the things in a family spread this big uh, is that you know we all sort of get reared by different parents because each parent the parents are at different ages when they're rearing you and uh, so in our family there were the olders and then the youngers you know we were kind of split into two groups and so the olders had a slightly different upbringing than we did uh, and the youngers you you kind of wanted it to loosen up a little bit more than it did. But, <laughs> Eventually it did. Well, it was uh, also so divided, that, was it not, Irene? I'm sorry? Was it not also divided, uh, perhaps in an unspoken way, between the males and the females? Yes, I was just about to get there. Because I feel that my father treated the girls in the family differently than he treated the boys. And I wasn't quite aware of this as a child so much, but later on when I spoke with my brothers, you know, they had this image of dad being like, well, you know, laying down the law and, and being, you know, being kind of rough with them emotionally and all that, which, and to me, he was an incredibly affectionate man. So I was, I would, I didn't realize they were talking about the same person for a while. And then, you know these natural things erupt in a in a family dynamic, especially if there are rivers of martinis involved, which there were in our house, um, and and there were some not what my mom would call knockdown drag out fights, not physical fights, but but emotional fights, uh, especially during the '60s that were very difficult to witness. Um, my mother, on the other hand, was a she really loved charity work. She loved 
luncheons. She was very much a social creature and really was not into children, <laughs> which is a great thing to say about somebody who had seven of them. She just, the physicality of children was more than she could bear. Uh, and she had her own challenges being uh, brought up uh, by an aunt of hers. Um, I go into this a bit in the book. Um, she she uh, just was not capable of a kind of physical nourishing that every child needs. Mm -hmm. And so that was another thing that we grew up with that was a sort of missing piece for us. Um, I adapted uh, to that kind of neglect by overeating. And I, uh, I ate myself up to 200 pounds and tortured myself about it and, you know, had a very difficult time socially because of that. Uh, but then uh, other family members, you know, had kind of chronic pain. My little brother had chronic pain. My uh, another brother had a skin condition. Somebody else just couldn't make it have social interactions. Another sister had chronic anxiety. Um, alcohol uh, played a part in several siblings' uh, uh, lives uh, and happily able to turn it around. But um, so suddenly I began to go, well, hey, it wasn't just me that went through something. What? What actually happened? Because it was not a conventional, you know, Oh, these people drink and they toss their kids around and they don't feed them. You know, that was never the dynamic in our household. It was something more hidden, more um, it, kind of mysterious. And, and it took a while to kind of begin to tease it out. But this this journey that I took uh, to the wilderness with my brother and sister kind of helped me uh, explore that more than I already had. It kind of helped uh, heal some of those some of those wounds that so many of us grow up with. I'm I'm definitely not unique in this. Her name is Irene Garden. The name of the book, "Risking the Rapids: How My Wilderness Adventure Healed My Childhood." And Irene is also perhaps familiar to you wherever you are in the world listening to the God Show. Uh, she's also the author of "Women on Fire," and. Uh, you may have read about her as a result of the marvelous reviews that her husband has received as a playwright, John Peelmeyer, The Church, and also Agnes of God. Agnes of God and The Exorcist uh, have all been a part of uh, John's literary background, not The Exorcist that you saw in the movies. No, his adaptation is based on the novel, but yes. it is the same William Peter Blatty's uh, William Peter Blatty's book. As a matter of fact, he is in John is in England right now, where the UK tour is about to begin. Uh, it played the West End this show, and it's so it's a stage adaptation of The Exorcist, and uh, uh, that will be touring the UK in the next few months. There's a production going on now in Mexico. Uh, Italy it has plans for a production. So wherever you are in the world, eventually you'll probably be able to see it, should and, you win. And all of us, all of us with a Catholic background, of course, will no doubt do what we did with the movie, and that <laughs> is remain frozen in our seats, even <laughs> at the end. that effect. <laughs> uh, but, uh, what, but what a wonderfully artistic family. Yet you also acknowledge uh, 
that as you risked the rapids, you also risked the prominent existence of alcohol in your family. Yes, yes. And and I think that's certainly something that many of us have grown up with. Uh, and, and that plays out in different ways for people. Um, it, you know, for my parents, it was not it was not really binge drinking. It was like the nightly couple of martinis and, you know, uh, my dad's poker playing and all that kind of stuff. But and then eventually, uh, after my father died, it became a, quite a significant problem for my mother. Uh, and and other siblings have had issues with it. Uh, but they have gotten themselves out from under. Uh, There's a wonderful thing, by the way, if anybody's facing this issue, there's there's something called the alcohol experiment by a woman named Annie Grace, who wrote a book called This Naked Mind. Really interesting. It's, it's, it's 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 a book about changing beliefs about alcohol, which I think is a really direct and wonderful way to do it, as opposed to the old fashioned, ah, willpower, you know, <laughs> muscling through. Um, because basically what it does is it numbs people. And, and you know, you can't, as Brene Brown says, you cannot selectively numb, you know. So if you numb those painful feelings, you're also mm. numbing the good mm. stuff, too. So uh, and it it makes it slows people up. It makes people not be able to respond uh, uh, in the moment as well as they could. And so if you have parents who are who are uh, exploring that or doing that, uh, it, it becomes uh, more challenging for the children to get their needs met. There are voices around the world on every continent for whom this broadcast is available right now saying, my God, she's talking about us. She's, talk- she's talking about us. She's talking about us growing up as Catholics, and she's talking about us with a prominent father and, uh, and a mom who perhaps was not as responsive as the moms down the street. She's talking about us. But the one thing that's really different, though, I think, about that part of your family and the decision-making that was done is that while your father was a prominent broadcast personality in the Twin Cities, somehow you got to Montana. Tell, <laughs> tell us about that. Well, the Montana portion of the program happened much, much later than, uh, than the growing up portion. So this is a double narrative, this book. It is a, it's the story of my upbringing in the Midwest and so forth. And, and it, and it wasn't all doom and gloom, by the way, we, we had some wonderful times together and, and, you know, uh, the word play that went on in our house and the value of language uh, is something I'm always grateful for. And kind of getting back into the fifties a little bit and remembering some of those, uh, some of those times was really great. But uh, it's braided with the story of a wilderness adventure that uh, that I took with my younger brother, Jim, my younger sister, Ro, in 2014. So I was 62 at the time. Uh, am I that kind of person who goes off on wilderness journeys? 
no, I'm I'm not the person who wants to see her life pass before her eyes before uh, it's supposed to. You know, I'm not a skydiver or a rock climber or anything like that. But uh, my younger brother, Jim, moved to Montana about 45 years ago. And every single year he goes out into what they call the backcountry. It's the Bob Marshall Wilderness in Montana. It is the largest um, the remotest place in the lower 48 states, the remotest area. And he goes out and he, you know, rides horses back there and he takes his sons and they, you know, camp out and they just get close to nature. And, and, and it's always been something he adores doing. Well, in, in, uh, 2014, a, a brother of ours died unexpectedly. Uh, he was the brother who was nearest to me in age. Uh, he was a kind of troubled soul, uh, a genius, but no social capacity whatsoever. And um, and and he used to bully me in a, in really not good ways. So so it was a kind of and it, so everybody had a little difficulty with him. Give but us give us his name, Irene, so oh, that we can uh, keep track. His name is John. His name is John. And, uh, and when he was younger, he was called Skip, but he, his, mm-hmm. his older name was John. So John died and we gathered for the memorial and at the memorial service, my brother, or at, at the reception afterwards, my brother Jim said, well, we're going out, uh, we're going to the back country again this year. You guys want to come? Well, I had never done it. And I'd always thought, you know, this is something my brother adores, and I'm never really going to understand him fully and appreciate him until I do this. And so I, I wanted to do it for him, and I wanted to do it because my sister was thinking of doing it, and I love spending time with Ro. And I thought, you know, and hey, you know, am I, let me see if I can risk this. Can I, can I do this challenge? This is a bit of a challenge for me, but let me get out of my comfort zone and, and let's do this and let's have this bonding time. So some of his sons came along, so, uh, you know, another brother's son came with his kids. So it was essentially a family trip as well. And I thought, what better time to do it than with these people who are experienced in the wilderness, these people I love, you know, so let's, let's do it. And my brother told me that it was going to be at this time of year, essentially a float trip. We would go down the South Fork of the Flathead River on these river rafts. We would be floating. He would teach me to fly fish. It would be very relaxing, this journey. So, you know, I pack watercolors for, for my spare time, a few things to read. And we get there. And after a day long excruciating horseback ride into the wilderness. It was, oh, it was so painful. But it was beautiful too. You know, this this is kind of what I was talking about earlier uh, with you and the green room about how so often things in life are both things. They're both fantastic and they're just, ah, so difficult or annoying or whatever. So this was another one of those things. So going out into the wilderness we discovered when we got to the river after this day-long horseback ride that the river was much higher than they anticipated. And it's because there was a big snowfall 
the winter before, and the river was simply much higher. It had a greater velocity than they were expecting. So it was a much more challenging trip than even they anticipated. So that within 15 minutes of us being on the water, uh, we had, you know, the rafts full of like the, the fly fishing rods and all of our equipment. Within 15 minutes, we were going so fast and there was so much debris in the corners of the river and, you know, sticks and limbs were jagging at our eyes. Both two out of the three fly fishing rods snapped off so we couldn't use those for the rest of the trip. A couple of people got tossed out of the raft and that was just in the first 15 minutes. Mm. So the rest of the journey was really kind of hair raising. It was beautiful, but it was also a whole lot more than any of us bargained for. And and yet, um, you know, everybody was really amazing. And, you know, we pulled from the deep parts of ourselves to uh, to be kind to one another, to be as responsive as we could to the challenges that were there. And, um, and it was an incredible bonding experience and one that shed a lot of light on what what those early childhood wounds were and kind of helped helped us move past them there weren't really wounds between uh the three of us siblings uh we'd kind of gotten over those for the most part and 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 it certainly wasn't like oh i'd never done any inner work or any therapy before this journey i certainly had we you know as so many of us do we we tried and turned to address those uh those things but there was something about the wilderness uh, that just uh, and i think maybe pat that it, it's that the wilderness, we are as vulnerable as we can be when you're out there in the elements. And and that's kind of like being a child again. You know, you really don't have control over what's happening to you. You certainly can control your response to it. But, but you're really uh, at the mercy of forces you don't completely understand. And the great thing about the wilderness, though, is that you can't use any of the old tricks that you came up with when you were a child. You know, you can't charm the wilderness. You can't lie to it. You can't entertain it. You can't distract it. Uh, happily, you can't disappoint it. But uh, you just have to be present with it. And, and that's a very great and a very spiritual gift, I think. How long were you there? Six of the longest days of my life. <laughs> but you, you risked not only the rapids, but you also set aside uh, some of the things that we take for granted as being city kids. <laughs> but what, what lesson, if there was one, that you took back that you've never lost, that you've kept with you? Well, you know what's beautiful, I think, is that I've come to look at risk in general as a tightrope that connects us with what we want. You know, I, I wanted uh, a, a sense of peace and a sense of confidence, uh, but I had to cross that tightrope of risk to get there. But the great thing about risk is that, you know, even a tightrope walker doesn't start a hundred feet in the air with no net. A tightrope, you start at slowly, you start 
small, you, 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 you know, you have the tightrope off five inches off the ground so that if you should lose your balance, you're, you're, you're right there on the ground. And there are people who will help you learn how to do it. Um, so, so I think that's important to remember that when we're thinking about taking a risk, there will be people, if you commit to taking a risk that you're considering, and it doesn't have to be in the wilderness by any means, there are so many risks that we face. It could be, for instance, sharing a piece of work of yours. It could be a piece of writing or a piece of art or or an, an insight that you had. Or it could be having a conversation with a family member that might be a little uncomfortable. There, there is that risk. But if you, if you commit to it, there are people who will help you fulfill it. There's somebody who's giving an open mic somewhere that will help you get on your feet and speak. Uh, a very important part of my uh, early process as a writer, by the way, um, getting out there and sharing with other writers. Um, but there will be or someone who can help you approach the best way to have a conversation with with a family member or someone who will help you envision the the new work that you want to do, the new job that you want to get. So I would say if there's one thing that's really stuck with me, it's it's that idea of the tightrope, but to cross it and to walk it yourself because the power that you derive from that is power that you give yourself that no one can take away from you. No matter what, I did that trip, and no one can ever take that away. <laughs> one of the most interesting things to me, Irene, is when there's an experience like that shared with others close to you, how different the absorption of that experience can be. Have you talked to the kids that were with you? Oh, certainly, certainly. And that was part of it. You know, we would sit around the campfire when we finally reached land mm -hmm. and, and, and talk about things and talk about, and it was great too, because I mean, I was the oldest person there, which was interesting. Uh, and, and so there were a lot of younger folks there too. There were younger nephews, nephews in their thirties. There was a nephew in his forties and his kids who were 13 and 10 at the time. So uh, it became also a way of passing, not only passing down traditions, which my brother is very able to do because of the tradition of going out into the wilderness, but reading and talking and laughing together and sharing meals and cooking and doing the dishes at the river and all of that, uh, these are precious memories to have and precious times that we spend with each other. And again, the wilderness or when you're away from ordinary, uh, from ordinary daily life. So it doesn't have to be the wilderness, but it, it, that's such a helpful uh, place to be. It's such, an, uh, it's such a wide palette to draw from. And when you're there, it's almost like being in an altered state of consciousness. You know how when we dream, we have stronger feelings and stronger affiliations in a way. Uh, we're not distracted in the same way that we can be in this beautiful physical reality. And being in the wilderness and having this task of paddling and knowing there's no going back. I couldn't turn around and say, you know what, I really don't want to do this anymore. Goodbye. You know, to put yourself <laughs> in a situation where you cannot get out, you know, except by saying, well, you have to send a helicopter for me. But even that actually would not have worked 
worked, Pat. Uh, we had these little GPS, uh, one GPS thing that was supposed to send a signal to the satellite once a day. Yes. That would uh, notify. All it would say was, it could say two things. It could say safe or help. So it was supposed to broadcast every day, safe and uh, it would be received by the wife of one of the people who would then uh, send it out on email to everybody that we were all safe because we were completely out of touch with anybody. We did not know until we got home that that was malfunctioning, that they never oh. knew how we were. It oh. didn't work. So happily, we weren't uh, in any serious trouble. But if we had been, ooh, we would have been uh, without a paddle. (laughs) (laughs) And and once again, an example of the security of contemporary technology and how we depend on it. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm looking at page 248 of Risking the Rapids, and page 248, obviously toward the end of the book, um, Mm -hmm. is a collection, small collection of family photos. One of yes. them, though, is a formal family photo. Yes. Your sister uh, in her habit. Yes. Uh, your brother in his military uniform. Mm-hmm. Your father with his pipe and so on. But one of the children, one of the sons, his face is erased. Yes, and that is out of respect for that brother. Uh, There is a chapter in this book called The Determined Empty Chair. And it may be true of other family people who are listening to this broadcast. Sometimes there is a family member who simply decides to absent himself from the family. And this is a brother who has done that. Uh, uh, He early on kind of tore all of his pictures out of the family scrapbook. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has pretty much distanced himself from almost everybody in the family. Uh, I had no wish to hurt his feelings, but nor did I want him to feel like I was using his um, likeness uh, against his will. So, uh, so I made a decision to simply Respect that, and and uh, so that's why his face is not there. Have you heard any reaction from him? Not from him, no. And uh, sadly, um, uh, Mary Kay has since died. She died this summer. Keiko died this summer, and uh, but that was not, you know, in 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 one world, you would think uh, we would have seen him at that sure. uh, memorial, but that was not to be. So we just have to respect that that's what he, his wishes are and, um, and, and just go from there. And again, you have touched so many families. You know that with that simple acknowledgement of a member of your family. I think many of us do have that. It's true and it's sad um, because most of us would be really happy to be in contact with him. But and and as I say in the book, if he were to call me tomorrow, I'd take the call. I would I would you know I would I would pick up. But I don't know that that's that. I don't think this is one of the things uh, 
that I like expanding the idea that do we just have one life? Uh, you were talking about past life regressions. And I just feel there's so much that we all learn about being human beings. One lifetime just is not enough for it. So <laughs> I figure if that doesn't happen in this lifetime, it'll happen in another one. You've talked about some of the painful parts. Uh, what was the happiest part of your life as a single woman living with that family in general? <laughs> well, you know, I loved sitting around the dining room table with everybody. Uh, we would have dinner sitting down almost every night at the dining room table, unless my dad was working late, uh, as he sometimes did because he was a, an announcer. So sometimes he would announce things very late at night, movies and so forth. And then we would have dinner in the kitchen. But sitting around the dining room table, uh, at my father at one end, my mom at the other end, all of us trying to tell what we did in school, uh, playing word games, um, just jostling and, and, and being together was probably about the happiest time. Uh, I mentioned in the book, uh, for a while there, we, my mother created uh, a, a nightly kind of newspaper, to put at my father's place, mm -hmm. that was dictated by us kids. So, which was a really remarkable thing. It was called the Family Journal. There are only about 100, 150 uh, issues of it, and it was mostly one page. Uh and it was edited by uh, by that brother Pogo, who uh, who is not part of the family uh, experience at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, it's part of the experience, but he's not participating uh, in the same way. But anyway, he was the editor of it because he'd cracked his skull uh, and got a concussion and he had to lay very still when he was about 12 years old. So my mom said, well, let's, let's, let's make a newspaper and send it out to the relatives. She would have loved the computer. She would have, <laughs> she probably would have been on doing newsletters and all kinds of things uh she was before her time but she would pull out the old uh uh secretariat typewriter up out of the desk and take dictation from him and from us as we came home from school and then write it up and place it on dad's plate and what's wonderful about having that uh what, what they call the morgue the newspaper has a morgue which are all the back issues i have all the back issues oh and as i looked at them and was reminded of some of the really remarkable conversations we had at the dinner table, some of the really fun, sweet, you know, activities that we did and snowmen and jigsaw puzzles and bird watching and all of these things that sound kind of foreign to children now. <laughs> um, and what joy they gave us and what joy uh, playing with words and learning how to listen to one another uh, gave us. So I would say that was my happiest. And I also was very, very happy to get out of the house, <laughs> away from all the noise, and walk in nature, uh, which was quite near us. So it was kind of, again, both. I loved being around the table with everybody, but I also loved being off by myself between home and school and just being part of the natural world. Irene, Irene, please don't be stunned if someone is introduced to you in one of your lecture tours or when you're signing books uh, or in any of your appearances. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Irene O'Garden, the author of Risking the Rapids, and after the event, somebody comes up and says, because I heard you on The God Show, uh, our family started doing a family journal. That's one of the best ideas because people now, probably more than ever before, parents are so busy and they're going in so many different directions and the kids are have so many activities. They're involved in so many different things and it's hard to catch up. But with a family journal at dad or mom's place, uh, particularly now that we have computers, yes. wow, what a great idea. Now, will people have to actually pay you the rights <laughs> for those journals, <laughs> Irene? it wasn't my idea. It was my mother's idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she would be happy to spread it far and wide. So that, so that everybody listening right now, uh, particularly those people who are saying, well, we had a fun family like that, but we didn't write a book. And... Uh, uh, Risking the Rapid sounds like a fascinating story, and it sounds like a fascinating, uh, uh, fascinating tale. But I really would like to acknowledge the fact that not all of this will be made into a Disney movie, particularly, <laughs> yeah, right. particularly though, the parts that had me hysterically laughing uh, over the past couple of days. I am calling to mind now your question about the value of a training bra. <laughs> Please share that with our audience. Oh, well, I, I uh, you know, it, that, that one doesn't instantly spring to my mind, but um, it was just sort of those things is like, well, I, I wanted one because everybody else had one. But, you know, my mother was someone who really wanted to hold off growth uh, in that way as far as <laughs> as long as she could. Um, and, you know, her, her whole idea about about women and their periods was just, oh, she just couldn't. She, this is a woman. I can't even talk about that. This is a woman who could not say the word belly, much less anything else. <laughs> You know, she she was brought up a couple of generations behind, and uh, and her ideas of being a lady were, you know, a little uh, a little extreme, a little extreme. Well, so you, you go, you, know, you she go into me to never shave my legs. Yes, it was like, no, mom. Oh, no. You, you tried to explain that nylons could present a problem uh, yes. if you didn't they, shave your legs. They just press it down and it looks terrible. <laughs> well, no, I, I think that every young woman, no matter how open her mom might have been, uh, will enjoy the chapter very personally yours. Yes. Because yes. I think every woman, particularly uh, in your age bracket, will recognize that title. <laughs> yes, indeed. Very personally yours. <laughs> and that's where you got most of your information. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Thank heavens there was such a thing as a movie made by, I didn't realize until I went back and looked for it, uh, it was made by Disney. The, the, the movie that we saw, uh, <laughs> all about the miracle. 
was made by Disney. Oh, that's so funny that's that I should. That's funny that I should use that as an example of what you <laughs> what you won't find in a Disney movie. Uh, yeah. Well, well I, I brought up the training bra because you yourself acknowledged the fact that you were not over endowed at that that's early true. part of your life. Uh huh. And that's and that in comparison. Uh, you didn't feel that it was fair uh, that uh, that some girls needed to have their bra training them, <laughs> and you didn't feel that there was any necessity. That's right. Oh, oh. The pain, the pain. It's amazing we get through adolescence, isn't it? Well, and you did. You did, and you did so. Uh, with a, a surprising amount of humor, but you also did so with the help of friends. Yes, that was very important to me to realize, oh, outside of outside of the family, there are people who could, you know, get a kick out of what I did or whatever. I'm about to head off, as a matter of fact, in a week or two to my 50th high school reunion. <laughs> oh, have you been to one before? I have been to not not a fiftieth. <laughs> no, but have you been to a reunion I, I before? Like a reunion. I like a reunion. I've been to a couple of them. Uh, I like them because they're absolutely pure and true. You know, this is wow. You knew these people back in the day. They knew you, and this is an unfolding of life. This is what life does to us. Uh, this is what we do with life. It's kind of an unmediated, beautiful way of, of reconnecting with people. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Did any of the fellows at your last reunion have hair? Well, I went to an all-girls school, so pretty much everybody had hair. <laughs> <laughs> and, and some of them, whose mothers were strict, still had hair on their legs, apparently. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I never checked for that anymore. <laughs> the, uh, the reunion, though, uh, must be a very different kind of an experience. I happen to go to all-boys schools, too. Uh -huh. And so I, I really understand uh, that the only time that, uh, uh, that girls were on the campus at reunion time is when you were talking about wives and girlfriends. Uh-huh. But with your reunions, uh, did you find did you find that there were some major surprises based on what you thought your friends, your associates, maybe some who were not so friendly uh, when you were in school, what they would become as to as opposed to what they actually did become? Um, you know, it's so interesting because I, I think, yeah, sure, there are, there are some people who might surprise you, but because, uh, because it's such a special way of interacting with people, uh, it's just such a, uh, you know, I just, I just love it. I just love, uh, sure, surprise me, great. Oh, this happened. Or, oh, my gosh, how did you deal with that challenge? Um, so it, for me, it takes more, uh, it takes place more in the present moment, even though you remember what that person was like, mm -hmm. um, you, you, you go, oh, so now this is what you have done. This is how you have created. Uh, so I, I really value that. I really value that. What um, was the last reunion you went to? Uh, I went to one, let's see, it would probably be, oh, 
I want to say oh three because actually I was working on a play at the time uh, about Corita Kent. I don't know if you remember Sister Corita. I th- I think that I I think that I read in the publicity material yeah. that was sent by your publicist. Yes, uh-huh. um, it's a play called Little Heart. It has not been produced yet, but it, it is about uh, this uh, remarkable artist who was internationally known in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, uh, Sister Korea Kent. And she was in Newsweek and she was the, you know, the cover of Newsweek she made. And she was, you know, she did major ads and all that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, as you can tell from uh, Risking the Rapids, uh, I'm very interested in that transition between the 50s and the 60s because mm-hmm. I think it's so dramatic what we all went through in those years, this very contained kind of society to this really explosive, wildly creative uh, society. So I was quite interested in in her story because she then also left the convent. Uh, and, and I think she just, as a female artist, a very, very interesting uh, woman and a very interesting story. So I was working on that at the last, uh, at the last reunion that I went to. So that I think was 03. So, so, yeah, so when, but when you arrive, I was talking to you about your, um, your image uh, your memory of the people that you went to school with and mm-hmm. and then how that memory may have changed. Were you considered to be, as a result of being a published author, married to a major playwright, were you considered to be a celebrity by your your uh, classmates? Oh, I don't know, a celebrity. I think that's kind of... Uh, <laughs> I th- But I think they're happy that... I, they knew that I wanted to write... And I think they're happy that I've been able to do that and been able to publish and certainly been able to to travel uh, in a wonderful way because of my beloved husband. Um, he loves to travel. And so I've seen a, a, a hunk of the world. Um, so, But I wouldn't say celebrity. I, I guess I was always kind of uh, – I, I was always out there in a way uh, in high school – because I was very shy as, as before high school. I was very, um, you know, the weight made me very, very shy. And I'd been made fun of and all of that. And, you know, I, I think many of us have done this in our lives where we have made a decision. And I made a decision going from eighth grade into high school that, all right, I'm just not going to be that way anymore. I am going to, again, I suppose it goes back to taking a risk. I'm going to take the risk of really being out there in high school, of really trying to create and trying to gather and trying to be with other people and trying to, uh, you know, really speak with them and, and, and kind of wake myself up. And so I think I was kind of known as a, I wouldn't quite say loud mouth, but <laughs> I certainly was a, a, a sort of personality then. Anyway, I, happily, I think I've mellowed a little bit. But oh, over time, so. over time, Irene, as your appearance changed, as your weight changed, Radically did well, we know that uh, just simply, I know that because of the book. Um, but uh, you were 200 pounds yeah. you, and you lost a dramatic amount of weight. Did mm-hmm. that change? the way people treated you and the way you saw yourself? I think the way you see yourself comes first. You know, as you begin 
to transform, it's really important to stay to, 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 to see yourself transform. Yes, certainly people treated me differently. Uh, uh, you know, th- they were no longer making fun of me. They were no longer, you know, they, and people have a very difficult time believing that I ever had such an issue in my life because the transformation is so complete. But it came, it came from, uh, you know, maybe early on the impulse was like, no, 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 I've got to look normal. I've got to be, but, but as the years have gone on, it's really about learning to value the physical body, my physical body, my physical self, uh, which is another thing that I was not taught. Uh, growing up in our house, you didn't have bodies. Of course, you couldn't even say belly, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have bodies. We were intellects and we were souls. And I think that was kind of a drawback to the way Catholicism was approached then. And and in some corners is still approached. It's like the body is inferior. It is not to be appreciated. And uh, happily, as I had freed myself from those beliefs, it's been possible for me to take real pleasure in these bodies that we're meant to take pleasure in. Somewhere, as somewhere, right, animal is meant to Irene, take. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I'm almost out of time with this conversation. And oh. be, because of the specific nature of that transition in your life, I'm picturing someone in our audience right now, somewhere on the planet, who is 200 or so pounds, and right now is saying, Irene, tell me what I can do to become the person that I hear you being. There are so many ways that you can support yourself in taking the steps toward who you want to be. I will say uh, Weight Watchers is a very good program. If you've had difficulty learning how to eat with health, uh, I think it's a really good program that helps you lose weight while you are learning how to nourish yourself. Uh, I think it's really important to find some kind of way to move your body that you love. Uh, I first started with swimming because I liked the rhythm of swimming. And I thought, okay, people are going to look at my big body, but just for a moment while I get in the water. And I loved doing that. And then I learned I could dance to music when no one was around. Mm-hmm. And so beginning to find ways to take pleasure in your own body and and to get uh, help from people around you or from a from a system like Weight Watchers uh, that can help you learn how to eat uh, healthily and really take joy in yourself. Tell me about the joy before we leave. One minute you have an opportunity. You, boy, <laughs> boy, do you have the stress of a successful author on your side. In one minute, tell me about the joy of being Mrs. Peelmeyer. Oh, well, that's also wonderful. <laughs> uh, because he's an incredibly loving man. Uh, if he were just a famous playwright, uh, there could be all kinds of things uh, that that were less than wonderful. But he is a, he's a delightful man. We've been together 40 years. We look forward to many, many more. Uh, and uh, we have had, we love to, travel. We love to stay home. Uh, he's a funny man and a sweet man. So, uh, so that's a, a grand, a grand gift in my life. Is there anything about him that reminds you of your father? Um, I, I would say, yes, he has that same integrity. <laughs> 
and that same kindness, uh, uh, which I was privileged to know. In I don't life. think we could end on a better point of view or a better, more poetic phrase, because after all, along with being the author of Risking the Rapids and Women on Fire, you're also a well-known poet. And now, one of my absolute favorite guests on The God oh. Show, Irene O'Garden. Ladies and gentlemen, and aren't you glad you got a chance to know her at the Star Worldwide Networks? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.